The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Um, I'm really delighted to be here to share my book with you, which is titled How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. And as Steve correctly pointed out, I think this is the big question that we are all concerned about. Uh, as we know, there are many books out there about China's growth and development. So before I launch into my book, I think it's helpful at the outset for me to discuss sort of how is this book different from all of the other China development books out there. Um, so, you know, there are there is a proliferation of labels about China's model. We all want to find that China model. Uh, we have labels like the Beijing consensus, authoritarian capitalism, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, and the list goes on and on. Um, and I would argue that there are two sort of problems with existing models. The first problem is that all existing models of China are partially correct, but none is complete. And the reason for this is that China is like a big elephant. It's not only a big elephant, it's an evolving elephant. It changes color and shape constantly. And so depending on which part of this elephant you are looking at and at what point you are looking at this elephant, you can come up with a million different descriptions of China and all of it is correct, but none of it tells you what the entire elephant looked like. Right? The other problem with existing models is that none of it is generalizable. So they're all fixated with telling us something exceptional or even exotic about China. But outside of the China field, people who study development rarely sort of pick up any lessons from these models. Um, and this, I think, speaks to the limitations of China's soft power, that despite the fact that this is the second largest economy in the world and a rising global power, China has had very limited influence on the production of global norms and the production of global knowledge. So these are the two problems that I'm trying to tackle in my book. What's new about this book is that I wanted to put forth for you a model of China's development that is both complete in the sense that it captures all of the changes in China over time and in different parts of China, and at the same time generalizable, meaning there are lessons from this book that for anyone who studies development, you just cannot afford to ignore. And this model, I call it directed improvisation. This particular model has two elements. The first element is a sequential element. And I'm going to argue that contrary to the traditional way we think about development as a linear process, development actually occurs in a sequence of three steps. And paradoxically, the first step of this process is to build markets with weak institutions. And this is something that China has been remarkably good at doing. The second dimension of this model is that in order for local agents to improvise effectively, this is not a process that automatically occurs. You have to create the right conditions for local adaptation to constantly evolving problems. So this is the overall model that I call directed improvisation. In today's talk, I'm not going to sort of set forth for you the entire argument, but instead I'm going to just focus on the first part of the argument, which is how development actually occurs and how is it that one step flows into another in this particular sequence that I will lay out. So let me begin um, my, with my take on China's story, and I think it's easier for me to stand. And my take begins with the choice of the book cover. So I'm very fortunate to work with uh, Cornell University Press, Roger Hayden is a wonderful editor. He was very patient and thoughtful, and he allowed me to take time to find the right image for the book. So we knew that the book is called How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, and of course there are a thousand different pictures we could choose from, and a lot of them I just said, mm, it doesn't feel right. And so after much digging in the library, I finally found this picture. So I'll, I'll like to ask for a little participation from the audience. Uh, where do you think this picture is taken? And Sarah and Jan cannot answer because they know the answer. But where do you think this picture is taken? Any guesses? Search bar. 
Sichuan, a very good guess. Anyone else? Guizhou. Yes, very good guesses. So this, these are the Near common Guilin. guesses. Guilin, did you say Guilin? Yeah, Sichuan, Hunan, you know, Guilin. And in fact, this picture is taken in Guangdong province, which is the birthplace of Chinese capitalism. This is Guangdong province in 1982. These are a group of children standing on a mountain top watching a new highway being built in the distance. Okay? This is the kind of picture that we no longer see in the newspaper today. Right? So we forget that China was a poor country. Instead, what we see today are pictures like this. China as a wealthy, you know, powerful, almost intimidating nation. And so before I sort of go into my explanation for how China escaped the poverty trap, I think it's useful for us to start with a simple reality check. So as a China expert, I'm, all, I'm usually told by others that you know, it's not surprising that China became successful because China is not Bangladesh and it's not Chad, right? And if you look at GDP numbers today, that's true in terms of income per capita in 2012, China is 10 to 20 times better than Malawi, Bangladesh, Chad, which we call bottom billion countries. Uh, but I'd like to ask you another question, which is what do you think the figure looks like in 1980? Do you think China was slightly better, moderately better, or a lot better than Chad? Worse. Worse. In terms of GDP per capita? Yes. Only. Yes. Okay, worse. Worse. This audience is too smart. <laughs> and so about, so um, you are absolutely right. Most people would actually think, oh, China must have always been wealthier than Chad. But in fact, in 1980, China was poorer than Malawi, Bangladesh, and Chad. It was a very, very poor country. So if you put the two charts together, what is really astounding about China is not only the rate of growth, but the magnitude of change because the starting point for China was so low. So that's the economic picture, and as I think it's useful to also bear in mind that China's transformation is not only economic, but political. Um, and we often think about China today as this, a very strong, powerful nation with Xi Jinping flanked by the Great Wall of China and the PLA. But I think as this crowd knows, um, many, just a few decades ago, right, China's political system was in total disarray, suffered major crisis under Mao, including the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, Mao himself described that as utter chaos, an all-out civil war, and in particular, devastated the bureaucracy. So if you put the two parts together, China's starting point in 1978 is that economically, it was poorer than bottom billion countries like Chad, Politically, it suffered a century of foreign invasion and civil war, followed by 30 years of tumult under Mao. Once you've done this reality check, you'll realize that the results we see in China today is not something that we can take for granted. Right? So how do we explain China's great transformation? And I would like to sort of review for you a few dominant explanations out there. And I'd like to start with this book. Why nations fail? Why? Because this is the benchmark in international development. This is the book that appears on every syllabus of development. It is the best-selling book. Um, if you want to know, you know, what is the state-of-the-art knowledge of development, this is the book. And Asim Oklu and Robinson argue that um, the way to achieve successful development is through what they call inclusive and non-extractive institutions. And we may differ on our interpretation of what these words mean. My understanding is basically they're saying democratic institutions lead to economic success. Uh, but once you take this theory and you get to China, it becomes very problematic because obviously China is not a democracy. It is an authoritarian system. Uh, there, is, um, there is no formal inclusive mechanism. There is corruption in China. So how, do, how would Asim Boklu and Robinson account for China's success? I encourage you to go to their book and read the one chapter where they discuss this problem. Um, they have several explanations for it. The first explanation is that they argue that China's growth will eventually slow down. 
but I'm sure as you all agree with me, any middle income and high income economy will experience slower growth, right? So this is not exceptional to China at all. Moreover, even if China's growth slows, you still have to explain how to escape the poverty trap. So that's not an explanation. So the second argument they have is that China had plenty of room to catch up because it was very poor. But if that were the case, then all poor countries in the world would catch up, right? But obviously, many stay poor. So that's not an explanation either. So finally, you know, they run out of explanations and they invoke the big L word, which is luck. Some luck is key. China got lucky. But I don't think that you will find that satisfactory that luck alone can explain four decades of co continuous economic and institutional transformation. So this is the state of the art knowledge in international development, and this is the big gap between its understanding and China's reality. When did this book come out? It, uh, it came out, I believe, in 2012, and if you go on Amazon today, it is still the best-selling book in development. Yeah. Uh, so, but we know that in the China field, many people have done research on China's development, and uh, I think it's useful to go through a few common explanations. One explanation is that once Deng Xiaoping opened markets, you know, China possessed some basic growth factors. It had cheap labor, it had foreign capital, so it doesn't matter what the government does. It doesn't matter, you know, what policies were made. You know, 40 years later, we will get the outcome today. I'm not convinced by this argument because that to me is basically saying that if you put eggs, sugar, and fly in a mixing bowl, the next day you will have cake, right? And it doesn't make sense because we do need basic ingredients to create development, but ingredients don't bake themselves. In the context of China, the policies and the actions of government are particularly critical, and you can't set that aside. So the other explanation is that it's about incentives alone, because the Chinese government created growth incentives, and so therefore, we have the economic boom that we see today. The problem with this argument is that China is a very big country, so even though the same set of incentives were created for the entire bureaucracy, we see highly uneven results over time. So incentives only work in certain parts of China at certain times, but it doesn't tell us the complete story. And then finally, this is an explanation that often comes up and the Chinese government likes to invoke it today. Uh, the Chinese have a culture, a certain culture of hard work and entrepreneurship that is part of the Confucian tradition. And I am always rather skeptical of culture because culture is supposed to be a stable set of assumptions and beliefs. And if culture doesn't change, how is it that within the last century we have seen great successes and great failures, right? So if culture doesn't change, then it can't possibly be explaining outcomes that have changed radically over a short period of time. So in short, all of the explanations that we have out there is like a box of jigsaw puzzle. Every piece of this puzzle is important, is relevant, but what we still don't have is that grand picture of how everything fits together. And so this is what my book does. In order to piece the grand picture of development together, we need to step back from the China context and just think about development more in more abstract terms. Right? So we often think development is just an economic problem of growing from rich, of growing from poor to rich, but in fact it's more complicated than that because we know that all rich countries have what we call good governance or strong institutions, such as rule of law, technocratic bureaucracies, formal property rights. And we know that these two things are interdependent. So you can't have good governance without economic growth, and you can't have economic growth without good governance, right? So it's stuck in a chicken and egg problem. And existing theories in development have been fighting for many, many years over you know, which of these elements actually came first in the process. And um, what I argue is that uh, there's something sort of missing in the conventional wisdom, the way we think about development in general which is that we insist on thinking about development as a linear process, that the arrow has to point in either one way or the other, when in fact, intuitively, we know that development probably looks more like this, more like a co-evolutionary process in which markets change the government and the governments change the markets in turn, and that this is a process that plays out in many steps rather than in one big arrow. 
And in fact, this reality, when I try to convince academics of it, they might be resistant, but when I try to talk to lay people about it, they think that this is the most obvious fact. So in my fieldwork in China, for example, I would deliberately ask local cadres who have had very little formal education, no college education, I would ask them the academic question, in your locality, do you think it was good governance that led to growth or growth that led to good governance? And this cadre, for example, in Hubei province, gave a very insightful and reasonable response. He said, the economy and the bureaucracy interact and change together. There must be a process. The government can't reform overnight, which is a completely reasonable answer. And by this point, he's convinced that academics truly are just academics, right? And why are you asking me you know, an obvious um, question? And so at this point, I would ask them, you know, I agree with your insights, so can you explain to me how this process started and unfolded? And at this point, they would say, it's too complicated. You know, I sort of know that it's messy and it, and it co-evolves, but if you really ask me to explain it, I can't. It's too complicated. And so that's the difference between an intuitive understanding of development as a messy evolutionary process and a scholarly analysis of how this process actually unfolds. So my job as a scholar is to collect data in order to lay out for you the historical process of how development unfolded across different parts of China. So what I do in my book is that I pick different cases both on the coast in China and in inland parts of China, and I wanted to tell the evolution of both the government and the economy over 35 years of history. Now in order to do that, I have to change the way fieldwork is normally done in China. The way China experts normally study China is, they, is that they go to a research site, they make a list of questions, and they study these questions in the present moment. So it's like taking a camera and taking a single snapshot and drawing your conclusions from this single snapshot. What I do for my book instead is that I have a list of questions and I ask the same questions over time. So I ask them, what happened in the 80s, in the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s? So it's very repetitive, but it produces for you a very rich set of thick historical data about the story of different parts of China. So I have over 400 interviews across regions, across policy domains over time. And I recorded all of these interviews that produce 1,000 pages of transcript in Chinese. So that is a lot, a lot of data, textual data, even though it's not numbers, which I then break up into parts and rearrange like a jigsaw puzzle. I rearrange them in this way. Uh, I rearrange them according to whether the observation was about the economy or the government. I lay them out by time. And then I try to trace the sequence of changes from one early point to a later point. So all of this sounds very academic, which gets us to the important question, what do we learn by connecting snapshots? We will learn that depending on where and when you look within China, every model is correct, but none is complete. And to illustrate what I mean, I'm going to show you a case from my book. This is Blessed County from Zhejiang province. It's one of the wealthiest counties in Zhejiang. It has a vibrant private sector, about 800,000 residents, many were migrant workers. And you can see this is a sort of typical coastal county that has dramatically transformed over the years. So I'm going to show you a few snapshots of the historical life path of this county. Um, from 1978 onward, like in everywhere else in China, this county was not allowed to have private enterprises, there was no formal property rights, and there was a lack of rule of law. So they kick-started this process with the local government promoting township and village enterprises. By 78 to 93, this achieved an initial growth spread, industrial output grew 33-fold. <laughs> so if you focus only on this snapshot of this county's history, you'll think that we have evidence for this model, which is called good enough governance, that if you have incremental changes in the beginning, that is sufficient to stimulate growth. Except if you look further down the causal chain, you'll find that over time, business expansion was constrained by state planning mandates 
and the lack of clear private property rights. So that motivated the government to continue to change. So in 1993 to 1995, within a two-year period, all of these collectively owned enterprises were privatized in mass. The state, uh, the role of the state at the time was limited only to facilitating the privatization process. So for those who subscribe to the model of the Washington Consensus, this is evidence for their model, that if you have limited government and private property rights, those are the ingredients that you need for growth. Except this, again, is just a partial snapshot of the whole process. Because if you look further down the causal chain, by the late 1990s, as local industries flourished, the county became congested and chaotic, and businesses themselves actually demanded the government to become more proactive and interventionist. And so from 2002 onwards, the county planned the construction of a central business district, and it forcefully relocated businesses into state-designated zones. And it was this action in 2002 that led to a structural transformation of the economy after 2002. So if you look at this final snapshot, it seems to give you evidence for a radically different model, the model of the developmental state, where you need to have a highly interventionist government in order to have economic success. So in short, depending on when you actually make an observation about the development of this county, you have evidence for every kind of model and every kind of description, but none of these snapshots is a complete picture. So then the question is, what is the grand model? What is the grand picture that captures all of these models that we can think of? And this model has to be one about the sequence of development itself, rather than any particular policies that were made or any particular institution that was created, because all of these things were particular to a, a part of China or a particular point in history. And so in my book, I stylized this sequence and condense it into three simple steps. The first step of this process is to harness weak institutions to build markets. When I say weak institutions, I mean normatively weak institutions. So if we make a list of best practices, you know, uh, World Bank style best practices, private property rights, rule of law, technocratic bureaucracies, and you flip it around, we normally think that these types of institutions are the problem that we need to eradicate. But what we find in the China case is that they always kickstart the process by harnessing these weak institutions to build markets. Once markets emerge, step two, the emergence of the market changes the preferences of the elites in the locality, and it also changes the mix of resources they have. And this then leads us to step three, which is that the creation of conventionally strong institutions then serve to preserve markets that had been created at a much earlier point in time. And so in the particular example of the county that I've shown you, I've talked about the role of collective property rights as opposed to private property rights, but there are many other examples of weak institutions that you'll find in the book, including the use of non-specialized patronage-based bureaucracies, partial regulation, uncoordinated investment policies, and incentives for extraction. If you look at this list, you would think that those are problems, right? Those are obstacles to development. What you'll find in this book is how Chinese local officials very creatively made use of these problems and turned them into the raw material for kick-starting the development process. And so for people outside of China, the big question is, is this just a China story or is this a broader development theory? And I venture to argue that, in fact, this is a generalizable pattern of development. So in the final chapter of the book, I extend the theory to three other cases. I look at the um, evolution of the property rights system in late medieval Europe. In the 12th and 13th century, international uh, regional trade in Europe started with the use of communal property rights, which is very similar to what we find in China in the 1980s. So contrary to the story that we often hear, it is not private property rights that led to economic growth because preceding private property rights in Europe was the prevalent use of communal property rights. I look at the evolution of the public financial system in pre-war America, 
which made use of risky, tactless financing schemes to finance big infrastructure like the Erie Canal. And this is exactly the same type of strategy that we find in China's financing schemes today. And I also look at Nigeria, the rise of Nollywood, in which filmmakers have very creatively made use of piracy as a distribution channel in order to overcome the lack of intellectual property rights. So whether you look at the history of the West or in other parts of the developing world, the development process actually begins with creative agents using whatever existing institutions they have to kickstart the development process. And China is one part, but not the only country that has shared the same experience. So to conclude a review of my argument, you will, have, you will find many, many labels about China's model. And I've argued that all existing models of China are correct, but none is complete and none is generalizable. So what I hope to provide in this book is a grand model of development, which I call directed improvisation. Today, I focus on the sequential dimension of this argument, and I've shown you that development is a co-evolutionary process that occurs in three steps. And the first step is paradoxically to build markets with weak institutions. And then there's a second dimension of the book, which is that in order for this development to occur from step to step, you really need to have local government officials who are motivated to adapt, to take risks, and to make changes as problems change. So the second part of the book tells you what were the specific conditions created within the Chinese bureaucracies that enable local adaptation to constantly evolving problems. So this is a set of answers that you will find in the book, but that I will not discuss today. So finally, I would like to end with this picture of an elephant um, to remind us that China is a big elephant and it is an evolving elephant. And so depending on which part of this elephant you touch, you'll come up with many, many descriptions of China. But at the end of the day, what we want is to have the full picture of how China escaped the poverty trap. And we also want to have a picture that's not limited to China, but has broader applications to the rest of the world. So these are the two purposes that my book has hoped to fill. And I very much look forward to your questions and reactions. Thank you very much for your attention. Let's bring it to the present day. Mm -hmm. So the book ends, I think, in about 2014. 2014. So yeah. we've had the third plenum since then. We've had the government's attempt to have more directed um, reform mm -hmm. and to continue economic growth. Yet the consensus is we have seen failure. That for the first time in the since 1979 we have seen failure. So my question is two-part. One, do you think that's correct? And two, why and what does it mean for the model that you think has, has created the Chinese miracle? Yeah. Uh, that is an excellent and very important question. So the book tells the story of how China escaped the poverty trap, which is about the first 35 years. And I absolutely agree with you that what we see under the current administration is a backpedaling of the methods that they have used in the past. So instead of becoming more open and more adaptive, I, I do agree with you that the current administration is actually cracking down on freedoms and making the system less adaptive. And so in the book, you'll find um, a, a discussion of the various sort of restrictions on the adaptability of the Chinese government, which makes me worried. Um, one of these restrictions that I talked about is that in the past, one of the reasons that local officials in China were so adaptive and so keen to promote growth is that they had a relatively narrow set of criteria. So it was all about economic performance. But today, when you look at the criteria by which local cadres are evaluated, it has exploded from six items to like 300 items. Um, and so I think China is in, has both a central political problem in terms of the crackdown of political freedoms. It also has a bureaucratic problem, which is that the evolution within the bureaucracy itself, I think it's 
restraining the local bureaucracy from being adapted. So you think that they're the model which has worked, they're actually deviating from their own model? They are deviating from their own model. And uh, I would think that President Xi should review their own model <laughs> and try to, take China, try to take lessons from its own experience. Getting to some point and realizing you need to make changes. So yes. you get to another point and you make changes. Why isn't it that you're at a point now that's not working, so they're going to make adapt and make changes that will get them back to a better place? Um, because there are several new conditions that we now see in China that we didn't see before. One of it, as I talked about, is that Local officials now are burdened with too many mandates and too many targets. So they're literally paralyzed on the ground. They have to do the economy, the environment, you know, poverty alleviation and everything else. So in a sense, their hands are so tied. So this is a condition that did not exist in the 80s and 90s when they were relatively free to do whatever it takes to promote development. So that is the first constraint. I think the other constraint is the anti-corruption campaign, which, which basically makes it very difficult for any local official to do innovative policies because any deviation can you know, get you into trouble. So these are some of the conditions that did not exist before that makes me think that the Chinese government is not going to be as, as adaptive as we had seen in the past. It's kind of Elaborate on the point about corruption. Mm -hmm. it, it, you're talking about weak institutions have allowed for this development. Yeah. Is kind of a weak judiciary, a weak anti-corruption effort for many, many years. Are you suggesting that that has led to this extraordinary growth? And I think back to, um, gosh, in 1980. 86, 87, we were at, at Lehman Brothers, we were advisors to the government of Indonesia, to the Ministry of Finance of Indonesia. And Indonesia has a terrible corruption problem. Really, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary that virtually any transaction is corrupt. And a Harvard-trained economist um, who was working at the Ministry of Finance told me something. He says, you know, you are bringing your Western values to this. Um, and what we were doing was making sure that their issuance of global bonds were not, there was no corruption involved there, but we didn't deal with corruption domestically. And he said, you know, corruption is 5 7% of GDP, but it allows the country to develop. And if you take the moral issue out of it, it's okay because basically you're lifting hundreds, you know, a few hundred million people, Indonesians, out of poverty. And he, he it was, a, you know, it was, you know, you kind of listened to him. And this was not a, uh, you know, a backwards person. It was a very sophisticated person who says, we're willing to live with this because this actually creates economic growth. It greases the wheels of economic growth. Is that what you're suggesting on China? Um, I... I have a slightly different argument from sort of what you have described. So I'm not saying that weak institutions or corruption by themselves would lead to economic growth. Because, you know, you go to developing countries around the world, they have a lot of corruption, but it doesn't seem to lead to any kind of success. So what I'm saying specifically is how these local agents make use of corruption. And that by itself then leads to the emergence of markets. So in the Chinese system, for example, they turned a lot of these um, profit-sharing schemes within the bureaucracy, and that which we, we might think of as corruption, and they turn that into an incentive scheme. So it's how you use the institutions and not corruption per se that leads to economic growth. Um, but Steve's point about Indonesia is a very apt comparison to China. I think what's distinctive about the nature of corruption in China is that China actually has done a very good job of controlling petty corruption. So having to pay bribes to police officers, for example. 
and I'm not sure about your experience, but I spent a fair amount of time in China, and I think I was quite lucky that I never had to pay a bribe. Um, like, and, and in fact, there is a, nat a cross-national survey that shows that um, only 9% of Chinese citizens report that they ever had to pay a bribe, compared, which is about the same as in Malaysia, a petty bribe. But in India and in Vietnam, the rates are much, much higher. But what you see in China, the corruption stories that we see are grand forms of corruption, bossy levels of corruption. So what they've done is really a dual track system where they crack down very hard on petty corruption. They create an institution of incentives where you know, on top of your formal salaries, you can get extra income without being illegal. But at the same time, they unleash grand corruption that greases the wheels of commercial transactions, as you describe. And it is because of this very differentiated landscape of corruption that allows us to see a China that seems corrupt, but at the same time, the economy appears to be booming. So that's how I make sense of the paradox that you've pointed out. Oh, very interesting. Question, you know, the, by the way, my view on this government, in terms of, uh, just to set the records, I gave you the consensus view of where reform and progress yeah. is. I don't share that view. Mm. I actually think that this government, that the Xi government, is making progress on uh. reforms in a very material way, and we just don't cover it and focus on it I enough. See. So that it's a, but the consensus, that the consensus view is not my view. But last question, then I see a lot of people's hands are up. Um, if China had been a democracy in <laughs> 1979, uh, 1978, would it have, I know it's a hypothetical and it's difficult, <laughs> but would they have been able to lift these 800 million people out of poverty as rapidly as they did? Can you kind of get your head around that? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the fact that it was an authoritarian government had the advantage of unleashing reforms at a nationwide level, that was one. And number two, the fact that it was authoritarian allowed it to create a certain set of conditions where local officials were both empowered and incentivized to direct this process. But since it's a hypothetical question, <laughs> um, I would sort of reserve the possibility that if China had been a democracy early on, perhaps we would not have seen sort of such rapid changes. But I'm a little bit hopeful about the possibilities of society playing a much bigger role in driving the development process, which I think is what we see in India today not as successful as China, but it, it is an economy where it nevertheless is still growing moderately, with society playing a much bigger role than the government. Let me just add one, one question, because it, it flows directly mm -hmm. from that, which is the weak institutions, which to some degree fostered growth up till now, yeah. now are a block to growth. That's right. That courts that are weak, That's that right. regulatory transparency doesn't exist, that you have institutions which if they were stronger and if you had more public participation would actually foster economic growth. Mm -hmm. So has it reached, is that part of your theory? It is yes and no because if you look at Shanghai today, it definitely has reached a middle, indeed, middle high income of development. And for them, a big priority is you know, improving governance, having more transparency. And in fact, whenever I get you know, my visa done in Shanghai, I am really quite impressed <laughs> at the level of efficiency in the Shanghai administration. Um, but when I go to inland parts of China, it is such a different picture because they have not reached that level of development. And in my interviews with local officials in Sichuan and in Hubei, for example, they would say, you know, we know that Shanghai is doing the right thing. We know that Shanghai has the best practices, but we really are not at that stage of development to replicate those practices. Um, so it is a yes 
and a no depending on where one is in China. Right. But I think it's, uh, TK, I think it's fair to say that the courts in Shanghai are perceived as more independent and fairer than courts elsewhere, and the regulatory apparatus in Shanghai is perceived as more transparent and better. Is that correct? <laughs> don't answer my question, on, okay. Because I, I don't want to say things that I don't know too much about. So, uh, but I, I was interested to see the picture of uh, Guangdong in 1982, because in 1982, I had the privilege of going to uh, Shenzhen and the Shokou Economic Zone and to teach law there. <laughs> wow. So, and then so I spent time there and I wrote my JD MBA thesis. So I actually tried to dig it up for you. Or, you know, there's eyewitness. Yeah. I mean, I actually did my study of the thesis. wasn't very good thesis, but <laughs> what the but the, the the model was, I looked at a wholly owned Chinese company, a JV, you know, a Chinese foreign JV, and then a wholly foreign owned company, and then I try to do a you know compare contrast. Mm -hmm. I mean, I you know I was just a student, so obviously, but I have some you know. Love to be able to share with you. I found Love to talk about. Steve, I'll, I'll share your view because I, I, we do litigation in China and uh, we do think Shanghai has better lawyer in there. And judges. Yes. Go ahead. <coughs> Hi. Uh, I have an observation and a question. Uh, uh, Bill Bacalis, I'm an economist. I've spent quite a bit of time in China. We came back to the U.S. a couple of years ago. Um, the observation is I like, of course, the picture of the elephant. China is indeed an elephant. <laughs> I think, to be fair, I think Sinology is a bit of an elephant also. <laughs> and you've, I kind of sent some of your description of the studies that people have done of China's development path is a bit like someone who is just touching a piece of the elephant. Mm -hmm. There are many people who have not only looked at snapshots of specific places at specific points in time and said, aha, this is how China has developed and always will develop. So the, the deeper question of over time, how have things evolved, your description was fascinating, co-evolution. But I think, I don't think it's quite so different from all the other discussions that are out there. That's my observation. My, my question is, I wonder how much of the pattern that you're describing depends on your choice of GDP per capita as such a key indicator of how a country develops. Because I just Googled quickly while we were here, life expectancies in 1980. China's life expectancy in 1980 was 67 years. Chad's life expectancy in 1980 was 44.6 years. That's not something that happens randomly. And many of us here were in China already by then. Remember what China was like. I first visited in 1978, leading a tour group uh, received by China International Travel Service. <laughs> and believe me, a country that didn't have a real strong capacity at that point could not have handled us crossing the train from you know uh, Hong Kong to Luohu and then flying to Xi'an and flying. There was the life expectancy of 67 at that point reflects some real institutional strengths, not market institutions, not capitalist market institutions, but other governance institutions. And, and my question is, if you, if you took a broader view of development than simply economic growth as measured by GDP per capita, uh, do you think that might affect some of the conclusions that, you, uh, that you've reached in this? I think we, and it even you sort of touched on that when you talked about these poor cadres today who have to actually think about the environment and think about, well, that's what happens with development. After a while, as the economy grows, you are expected to be able to deliver public services to your constituents, not, not simply economic growth. Uh, anyway, I'll stop because I know there's a lot of other questions. Yeah. Your, uh, if, if you used 
would be broader sure. indicators to, to assess yeah. progress. I think yeah. you might want you might need to change uh, some of your conclusions a little bit. <laughs> um, maybe I should address your question before I forget. And so, thank you for your question. The first question about these different snapshots and model. Um, I would say, yes, the book is different from these other snapshots that you talk about. And I take your point that these other models, it's true that they sometimes do cover like a 10-year period or a five-year period. And what the book provides is different in terms of, I really want to not just talk about, you know, even a five-year period, but a 10-year period, but the 35-year period. And also to really talk about sort of how this whole process of evolution varies across regions. So it's you know trying to do a lot of moving pieces all at once. So, but I take your point that existing models certainly do more than you know one year. You know they do five. cover yeah five maybe ten. But I really want to look at both at the national level, the sub-national level over thirty-five years, and more importantly, I wanted to condense it to a simple stylized model that people outside of China can look at and think we have something interesting to learn from this rather than read you know, really thick Chinese description and go, but that's just Chinese. You know, there's, 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 there's nothing that I can take away from it. So I wanted to do both the thick description as well as the stylized model that other people can find broadly useful. The other question is about China and Chad. And again, I take your point that um, GDP per capita is just one indicator. And certainly, it is true that um, even by 1980, because this was a communist party in power, China had um, much higher levels of literacy, for example. They had barefoot doctors, for example. So on those levels, it does much better uh, than Chad. But what I wanted to do in this book is I wanted to think about what are the lessons from China that we can provide to other developing countries? And if the answer is that, you know, whatever happened to China is because it had a centralized autocracy, then that's useless to the rest of the developing world. Because they are like, we don't have, you know, strong centralized states. So I wanted to synthesize and extract the part of the Chinese experience that countries like Somalia, India, and Nigeria can learn from. I think this slide may be helpful. This is the way we should think about it. China does have a centralized dictatorship, which makes it very special. What this means is that in China, the development process is highly state-directed, right? Um, but what we find in countries like Nigeria is that instead of thinking about the state as the agents of change, we will think about society as the agents of change. And this goes, goes back to Steve's uh, hypothetical question about what if China had been a democracy, society would have been this, the agent of change. Um, and so I think the broader lesson for other developing countries is that even if you don't have a centralized autocracy, you can still have society produce bottom-up development by improvising with whatever existing institutions they have. Even if those ex institutions look corrupt, look weak, look wrong. And I think that is a lesson that is broadly applicable and useful to developing countries. So that's my objective. And how does literacy, I mean, you touched yeah. on literacy. You know, when I went to these, you know, when TK was talking about 82, 83, one of the clearest things was these factories, which were kind of the engines for growth. You know, light industry was the engine for growth in the, in the 80s, was, was the, the workers were all women. Uh -huh. They were literate women because Chairman Mao had insisted that women be literate, and that the literacy rates were astronomical. When you compared them to India, it was just, it was night and day. Mm -hmm. China had educated its women, and India, a democracy, had not. Mm -hmm. And how does, how does that fit into kind of the model? Um, literacy is, like I said, it's true, it's much more widespread in China than in India, but at least in my study, what I find is that, you know, what is it that sparked the success of, the initial success of these places in China? Um, literacy did not come up so much, but it was a lot about personal connections. Right? Surprise, surprise. Yeah, personal connections of these government officials, uh, personal connections uh, that they had with local officials, which um, I talked about in a different part of the story. So I'm not saying that literacy is not important. It is important. 
Um, but a big part of the bigger part of China that I have seen is really the use of what we normally think about as patronage, personal relations mm -hmm. to kickstart this process. Um, and in India, what you find oftentimes is that the government has these patronage relations. They also have uh, personal relationships. But the same things have not been used to kickstart the development process. One of the key distinctions, which I have in the chapter of my book, is that in the Indian bureaucracy, there is almost no incentives for an Indian bureaucrat to do development using his own personal connections. The difference in China is that local officials have a personal stake in this process. And so he or she is willing to use his personal resources to help to kickstart this collective process. So that is one key distinction between China and India. I wanted to add that, sorry. I mean, just, just remembering back to the special economic zone, you know, at that point, <coughs> Shenzhen had 40,000 people, it was just a village, nothing, right. you know. So, but thinking back, you know, they didn't start from a blank sheet of paper, and I, I like the idea that you're trying to find a stylized model that could exercise China's soft power. You know, they went to Taiwan mm -hmm. and studied the, the zones there. Mm -hmm. They went to Hungary. Mm -hmm. They went to, you know, they, they didn't start with a blank sheet of paper. They actually, so in the sense, there are precedents to these models that they were working with, I think. Yeah. No, I, I'm not saying that any part of China started with a blank sheet of paper. In fact, my argument is precisely that they started a process by using whatever they have. And I completely agree with you that on the coast, they learned from Taiwan, they learned from Singapore, but they did not replicate those models blindly. Because if they did, they would have created a Singapore-style economic development board. But they did not. They did the exact opposite of what we expect to see in a technocratic barbarian bureaucracy. So they learned from other countries, but they were very selective about what to learn. And I think that's, that's a very Chinese characteristic. The other factor is that yeah. the role played by specific people, like, like Xiaoyang, mm -hmm. who, uh, who, who Steve knows very well. Yeah. You know, and Yuan Gun, who was the head of the uh, communist underground in, in Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, he, he was my host. He had a, he had a double stretch Mercedes. <laughs> but, but he was a very, you know, very advanced thinker. I mean, there were key people who don't believe Xiaoyang was one of them. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, that's the other thing, you know, specific people and their ideas. And Yang was a little bit too far ahead in terms of political reform and sort of yeah. No, I completely agree with you that personalities have had an important role in China's process. I'm not denying that. In fact, at the local levels, you always hear them say, we had one important leader in history you know, who had a critical role in our process and so on. But again, I'm thinking about you know, how can I tell the China story so that it is useful to other parts of the world? And if it's, if it's just a story about Deng Xiaoping and other particular individuals, then that's not particularly useful to them. So I choose to tell the story in such a way that it has lessons for other developing countries. But I agree with you, personalities are very important in China. Margot has waited patiently, but Frank <laughs> seems to really, he has a two-fingered intervention. Go ahead, Frank, and then Margot. I want to follow up on what PK was, was saying and raise a different level of China exceptionalism relative to the third world. And I want to focus on the Pearl River Delta and the Yangtze River Delta. And behind that, I want to talk about, or have, think, have us think about, the role of the overseas Chinese or the Hong Kong Chinese or the, the Chinese from Taiwan in investing in China, in setting up their factories, in the case of Hong Kong, across the border, uh, in the case of Taiwan, making investments, that you had that capitalist savvy uh, grouping of uh, entrepreneurs and factory owners and managers who saw the opportunities once a Deng Xiaoping policy of opening to the outside allowed those on the ground in the Pearl River Delta and the Yangtze River Delta initially 
perhaps also in Xiamen and, and, and other places, uh, to tap or accept or collaborate with their compatriots across the straits, across uh, the Shenzhen border. Um, you don't have that except maybe with India, with its diaspora that is capitalist savvy around the world. I'm not sure how many other countries have that concentrated historic, in the case of Hong Kong especially, uh, mass, critical mass of capitalist investors who speak the language. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Great point. Thank you very much. And you are absolutely right that there is you know, it is very well known that overseas Chinese have played a very important role in China's development process. And I have two responses to that. Number one, that is not exceptional to China. In fact, if you look at the success cases in other developing countries, in India, the IT industry, the diaspora played a big role. In Somalia, the telecommunications industry started by the diaspora. And in Nigeria, which is featured in my book, if you go online today, you can actually download Nollywood movies. And the reason is because they had Nigerians based in London who took the Nigerian films and then helped to digitize it. So this idea of the diaspora aiding development is found in the Chinese story, but it is by no means unique to China. And in fact, I think that this is one of the key lessons that other countries can learn, which is how do you leverage your diaspora to kickstart the process. And my second response is that one of the surprising findings in this book, um, which I did not expect, is that today when we look at China, what we see in places like Hubei, Sichuan, and Hunan is that they are not benefiting from the overseas Chinese diaspora from Taiwan and Hong Kong. They are benefiting from the domestic diaspora in Zhejiang and Guangdong. Mm -hmm. Yes, the size of domestic investment in China today is about equivalent with the amount of FDI going into China. And this is something we don't read about in the newspaper. But I think, again, this is a remarkable feature of China because it is so big. At first, it benefited from FDI. And today, the coaster uh, businesses are playing the role of foreign investors for those who have been left behind in the development process. <laughs> I was very surprised by your comment about petty corruption and think maybe an issue is the definition. You don't necessarily have to pay money. In my day back when, 1979, it wasn't money. It was name brand cigarettes preferably British cigarettes, or right down to today, banquets. <coughs> mm -hmm. You don't have to hand somebody cash for it to be a bribe. It's not the question, it's an observation. Yeah. Um, well, I did not do that survey, and if we wanted to do a survey of petty corruption, in China and in other countries, it is empirically challenging because, like you said, you have to define what corruption is. You know, do the Indians think about petty corruption in the same way? But at least that's what the survey indicates. The petty corruption in China is much lower compared to countries like <coughs> India and Vietnam. And you know, everyone might have a different experience. It's at least quite consistent with mine. Yes, I do have to bring gifts. Every time I do field work in China, I'm burdened <laughs> by a whole luggage of gifts. Right. I don't think about them as bribes, but yes, you know, we can have a debate about you know, culturally what is a bribe, right? right? <laughs> yes. Qing Gao. Yes. Um, then. Thank you. This is wonderful. As a peer pipper, I'm very proud. And, uh, thank you very much. Um, thank you for the National Committee. Um, I studied poverty too, and uh, China, of course, is a great success story uh, of development. I think that's the essence of your story, your book. But then in this process, income inequality has grown so mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. And what I pay attention to uh, is the group that's left behind in this development process. Mm -hmm. um, some are poor, some are extremely poor. 
Uh, so Xi Jinping himself launched this anti uh, grant targeted anti-poverty campaign, Jinjun campaign, a few mm -hmm. years ago, and now it's in full uh, action. Every government official in every uh, bureau or office has to do anti-poverty work. Um, what do you think about that? Um, it's very political, but it's also targeted on poverty. I think the goal is to eradicate poverty um, in China by 2020, which is soon. So, uh, what's your take on that in relation to your book? Yeah, that is a great question, and and I, you know, a lot of times I think when people see the book, they think I'm studying like micro level poverty programs, but that actually is in your domain. The story that I tell is sort of how, in general, China created the growth that then indirectly lifted a lot of people out of poverty, and I completely agree with you that a lot of people today in China have been left behind. And so I think that China is belated, you know, late in the process of coming back to tackle this problem of inequality. But I think one of the things that are worth, that is worth pointing out is that although that is definitely this problem of poverty in China, there is an even greater problem of poverty in India. Um, and so again, that goes back to C's hypothetical question. Um, the Chinese strategy has been that. Um, the I think the Chinese idiom for it is, if the water rises, the boat rises as well. And they didn't pay particular attention to poverty of alleviation in earlier parts of the reforms, but they now are. Uh, whereas in India, for a very, very long time until today, I think they have been very ineffective at um, fighting inequality. Yeah. Wait, I think we have some. Uh, yeah. I'm a student from NYU and very nations. I'm from uh, Shanghai, but I spent some time this winter in, in Hunan to, to study target uh, poverty alleviation. Uh -huh. Yeah, and uh, I, I also have a question for, uh, about the inequality uh, in China. And uh, my question is that, uh, what do you think the, the China model maybe influence or affect the economic inequality? Uh, well, is that uh, the, the, the famous saying by uh, President Xiaoping that uh, we must let some people be rich first? So do you think that it's a necessary, maybe, uh, rules for, for the Chinese development? Or maybe we have some other choice at the time? <laughs> that is also a hypothetical question. Um, but it definitely reminds me of the quotation I have in chapter six from Zhejiang, whenever you talk to businesses in Zhejiang, that is their favorite quote. Deng Xiaoping had said to let some get rich first. Yeah. Um, I think this whole idea of um, inequality, we need to think about it um, sort of in relative terms. It's true that there is tremendous inequality in China, but one of the points of comparison is Russia, right? So when I look at my case in Zhejiang, it's true that only a relatively small number of businesses got rich, but still we are talking about, you know, a fair amount of the population in Zhejiang. But when you think about the process of reform in Russia, it was a process in which all of the new wealth created was concentrated in the hands of a very, very small number of oligarchs, right? Whereas in Zhejiang, at least, you created a fairly large base of private entrepreneurs. So I think when we think about sort of inequality and let some get rich first, it is a relative term. But I, we should give some credit to China, at least on the coastal parts, and especially in places like Zhejiang, with a big private sector, in terms of creating broad-based development. That's a contradiction. The whole point of inequality is if the coastal regions are doing very well and the inland regions are not, that, that's inequality. That's true. But like I said, today, the coastal businesses are moving into the inland regions in big groups. And so they're doing that for profit, you know, because it's too expensive for them to continue their factories on the coast. But it, nevertheless, you do have this migration of growth opportunities from the coast to the inland regions. Is that producing inequality? Um, that at least is bringing in new opportunities for places like Hubei, because they are not going to get factories from Taiwan and Hong Kong. It doesn't really make sense. But it, make, it, it makes more sense from, say, you know, a factory from, you know, Zhejiang to migrate inland. Bill. Bill, I'm Bruster, retired journalist. 
Uh, a simple question, but maybe difficult to answer, it is do you consider China today a developed country or still developed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I realize there are huge, huge gaps between uh, yeah. Shanghai and, say, Hubei. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I think it's, it's a yes and no. I mean, if you answer it from a technical point of view, at, on aggregate, it is a middle-income economy, and they talk about escaping the middle-income trap today. But like I said, because China is so big and so diverse, um, once you get to places like Gansu, it still is so poor and is so desperate that you can't possibly call this a developed country. But if you go to Shanghai, you just get a radically different picture. So I think this is one feature of China that you just don't find in smaller <coughs> countries like Singapore, Japan, or even in the US. I do not think we have such a great degree of regional inequality. How, how many people does China s still consider in abject po poverty? A hundred million? I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Yeah, but I think it's close to that. Yeah. 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 Maybe Gaoqi might know. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. They moved it from one dollar to two dollars a day, and that, yeah. that took the number and moved it. I think from up over a hundred million. Sarah. Do you see any other countries that you would compare China with to having a similar pattern or trying something similar? It seems like China is sort of serendipity plus planning. <coughs> Do you see any other countries um, in a similar path or almost in that path? Um, I think the country that would come closest to having <coughs> parallels with China is the U.S. during the Gilded Age, hmm. right? <laughs> right? I mean, it was a period in which the U.S. economy was recovering from the Civil War, but there were a lot of new opportunities. You have to rapidly build massive infrastructure to connect the coast to the Midwest. Uh, there was a great deal of corruption at that time, but it was also a period of time in which you created the now famous businesses mm -hmm. that financed you know, NGOs, yeah. NGOs and good programs <laughs> yeah. that we now benefit from, right? And so if you ask me what is the closest parallel to China, it is the U.S. during the Gilded oh. Age. So if only we That's took the West and look further back in their past, we will find a mirror of China. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. Well, I think our time is, is just about up. But thank you. This has been a very spirited conversation. Thank very you very interesting. Much. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. For your